Tiffany, have you uh, ever been to Amsterdam? Yes. It is incredible. It is such a beautiful city. Loved it. I remember exiting from the train station and there were just waves and waves of cyclists, pedestrians, folks getting on and off flight rail and almost not a single car in sight. I love it too. I've been a few times. Uh, the first time when I was about 12, uh, my last time was a couple of years ago. And every time I go, it just blows my mind. Uh, it, it is so beautiful, as you just said. It is, I think, one of the most romantic cities in the world. And I just love it. The canals, the bicycles, everything there is awesome. You know, I, I think when I talk about uh, how much I like it, I've never been that good at conveying exactly what makes it so magical. But we then talked to Cornelia Dinka. She's the founder of Sustainable Amsterdam. Sometimes I say it's kind of like this feeling of almost like um, floating through the city or I don't, I, it's, it's, it's hard to describe, but it is it's this kind of like magical feeling where you're, it's like the opposite of being in your car, stressed out because you're trying to get to work, but there's a traffic jam. So it's like if you turn that around 180 degrees, you know, it's kind of like your every, every commute or every trip in the city is kind of like a moment of inspiration. Man, what a great description. I want to float through Boston. I know, right? I wish I could have floated through D.C. on that sweaty public transit trip I took in our first episode. And I was in L.A. for work a couple weeks ago, and everywhere I went there, I kept thinking about Cornelia feeling, you know, really inspired by her commutes instead of totally stressed out by them. And Yona Freemark, if you remember, he was on our show a few episodes back. He's the researcher at the Urban Institute. And he described, if you recall, L.A. completely differently than the way Cornelia talks about Amsterdam. If you go out and walk around so many parts of L.A., you'll find enormous arterial streets with terrible pedestrian crossings. You'll find a complete lack of quality bike infrastructure where people feel safe biking around. You'll find cars dominating virtually every space you look at in the environment. And when you have conditions like that, no matter how many investments you make in the public transportation, you're going to be having a society that is structured around needing to drive because no one wants to not drive in an environment that feels terrible if you're not in the car. Wow, yes. I remember that tape, and I cannot think of a clearer contrast than Amsterdam and Los Angeles. L.A. is definitely not floaty. No, it is not floaty at all. Uh, it was a city made by cars. And if you talk to anyone there, they will tell you how frustrating it is to get across that city. The average LA commuter spends five days a year stuck in traffic, and pedestrian deaths have risen steadily in the city, and nationally for that matter, for the past 40 years. So how did we end up with these totally different outcomes? It all comes back to one simple thing, the car. Or rather, how we've built our communities and our cities around the car. We've just gone so far in this direction of car dependence. The only way to get back to a more balanced equilibrium is to be a little bit extreme about reclaiming these cities. In our final episode of this season, The Car-Free City. The concept sounds a little radical, but it doesn't mean getting rid of cars altogether. Rather, it's about reimagining our communities to prioritize people over vehicles. What if most of us didn't have to reach for our car keys before walking out the front door every morning? What if we could float more and stress less? Yes. I'm Tiffany Chu. And I'm Andre Greenwald. And this is ModeShift. A show about the past, present, and future of how we move. 
So, uh, Tiffany, in this episode, we're going to dig into how cities are designing for people-centric mobility instead of car-centric mobility. But, you know, before we do that, I think we should probably give our definition of what a car-free city or car-free community uh, even is. Definitely. When people hear car-free, they probably think about banning cars altogether. Several cities around the world, including London, Paris, and Montreal, are looking at ways to dramatically reduce the number of vehicles in its streets. From Barcelona to Oslo to Mazdar City in the United Arab Emirates, officials are getting serious about redesigning their communities for car-free living. Many cities in Europe are flirting with banning private cars from the roads, and many more have at least partial bans in place. Now, bans or partial bans are one tool that cities are exploring. But we have a much broader and inclusive definition. What we're really talking about is creating enough alternatives to allow anyone to get around without a car. So it's actually about giving people more choices, not less, for a better quality of life. There is the obvious reason to combat climate change, but car-free cities are also leading to a better quality of life. Without cars, there's less smell, less noise, more space to walk, to dine outdoors, to play. I think this is a really uh, crucial point because there are huge benefits to fewer cars. It means fewer injuries and deaths from accidents. It means lower healthcare costs, lower air pollution and climate pollution, more space that can be used for green uh, parks or other uses, and better real estate values. But this all only works if it's paired with you know better transit and mobility alternatives. So. Let's dig deeper into our definition. Can you say more about the importance of choice, Tiffany? Yeah. You know, it's about being able to walk out your front door, have a multitude of different choices to get to where you need to go. And if one isn't available, you can choose another. In most places in the U.S., folks only have one real choice, their car. What if you had an abundance of mobility choices, an abundance of optionality? Yeah, that would be amazing. And I think, you know, I think if we're talking about, like, where do we start on getting a car-free city going, it starts with this abundance of mobility choices. And if you have that in place, then, you know, over time, fewer and fewer people will drive and you can start to uh, impose policies that also disincentivize driving and push more and more people to, to these alternatives. And, you know, over time, you know, can we get to a point where uh, in certain cities we have a much smaller percentage of travel by car, like something like, you know, 10% of travel by car. Not not zero car trips, but a very small percentage of what's happening. Yeah, and however we define it, this concept feels so ridiculously impossible to most people outside of America's biggest cities. So many of our communities were purpose-built for the car, with so much of our valuable land used for parking lots, highways, and arterial roads. You know, so many people in the U.S. have lived their entire lives around the car. Can you blame people for thinking there's no way to undo this? No, it, do, it does feel super daunting, you know. And when we think about where do we start on even tackling this problem, I, we probably need to take a look at some transportation history. You know, people often point to cities like Amsterdam or Copenhagen as these meccas of car-free living, as if they have always been that way. But Cornelia Dinka, the founder of Sustainable Amsterdam, we heard at the top of the show, she explained how that's not really true. Amsterdam, for example, actually invested heavily in car-centric design after World War II, just like most cities in the United States. So Amsterdam has this reputation of being a bike city, 
so what's very surprising for many people and also for, for me was, was to find out that, in fact, this wasn't always the case. This idea that Amsterdam was not always Amsterdam, that if you look at these uh, photos from Amsterdam in the 1970s and 1980s, it was much more like your average North American city, right? So sidewalks were covered in cars, parked cars, double parked cars, all the beautiful public uh, squares uh, that people really enjoy today uh, were basically used as parking lots. A lot of the city was being actually torn down and demolished to make room for these modernist highways and modernist buildings. Traffic experts from the U.S. went to Europe in the 60s and 70s to try to sell this idea of the car-centric city. Their pitch was basically, look, if, if you want to be a modern city, you have to stop being nostalgic about the past and you got to start embracing the car. And Amsterdam did that, at least for a bit. I like to say that Amsterdam was a combination of lucky and wise, that it didn't go down that path too far. Uh, it made some mistakes, and we have some of these modernist highways, actually one uh, to show, uh, kind of through the city center, which was then also reclaimed. You know, I had heard about this part of Amsterdam's history, and I've seen the photos, but if Amsterdam was already on this road to redesigning their city for their car, what changed? Public pressure. In 1971, there were more than 3,000 car-related deaths in the Netherlands, and 500 of them were children. And so there was this campaign called Stop de Kindermord, or Stop the Children's Murders. And a lot of people in the city started protesting against this car-centric vision for the city, including a bunch of kids. If you look on YouTube, you can find these great clips from 1972 in Amsterdam where children were actually blocking off city streets to cars to advocate for more play-safe streets. Uh, here they're chanting, get these cars out of the way, we want to play. And you see in the footage that Amsterdam looked a lot less appealing in the 1970s than it does today. Okay, just Googled it. Oh, crazy. This clip I just clicked on is all in Dutch, but there's this kid, maybe 9 or 10, with a classic Beatles haircut, and he's walking down the middle of some noisy street in Amsterdam, and then there are these kids in the streets with signs. It's kind of incredible. You know, as a public servant, I've been thinking a lot about protests and how cities should react or not react to various protests that happen. But it feels like they worked here. Yeah, they were definitely a big piece of the puzzle. There was this uh, other movement called the Cyclist Union, which built on the momentum and pushed for more support for bikes. And then in 1973, we had the Arab oil crisis, and that forced local leaders to seek alternatives to gas-fueled cars, which further turned the tide toward redesigning the city. And these same kind of protests uh, were actually happening in the U.S. as well. They just never made it into the history books. In almost every city, certainly every city where I've checked, and also a lot of small towns and suburbs, people, especially mothers of children, blocked streets demanding that the authorities step in and slow the vehicles down so that their children could go outside safely, so that their children could go to their friends' houses safely, and so that they themselves could walk around the street safely, too. This is Peter Norton. He's the University of Virginia professor we met back in episode one. And Peter says that from the late 1940s to the 1970s, a lot of women in the U.S. weren't loving the shift to car-centric living. From their point of view, this idea of a city where you can drive anywhere at any time was not a utopia. It was a 
dystopia almost. And so they started protesting, and not just well-to-do white women. Peter explained that middle and working-class women of all ethnicities took to the streets. These protests took the form of blocking the local streets to get attention. The reporters would come and ask what's going on, and they'd tell the reporters, we want a stop sign, we want a traffic light, we want the cars slowed down, we want some speed enforcement. And very often, they would get results. This is another illustration of how we have selectively omitted part of our history. And it's a very crucial one because it compels us to question the story that says everybody welcomed this transformation. This is fascinating. I remember in the first episode, Peter talked about how it was the automakers and the other industry players who aggressively lobbied for car-centric policies. And then you also have these pockets of resistance in the U.S. to car dependency. But why were there such different outcomes in the Netherlands versus the U.S.? I think it comes down to a combination of culture and geography. You know, America built the first mass-produced car. It's also a very big country, so it spent decades building new cities around the car after World War II. Amsterdam, which is in a country that is quite flat uh, uh, geographically, already had a rich bicycle culture, and that made it a viable alternative when the moment arose. It was absolutely not a walk in the park. It was not kumbaya, this transition in, in Amsterdam by any means. It took more than a decade of, of campaigning and lobbying and this kind of guerrilla activism uh, and all kinds of initiatives. Again, Amsterdam had kind of adopted uh, or was on that, on that path to some extent, but a lot of people could still remember a time when they uh, would have, uh, you know, biked to school as children themselves or played in the streets with their friends. So there was this collective memory that we can go back to a different time that is actually a, a, a more inspiring way to live. So that idea of having a collective memory of a more inspiring way to live really hits me. I had a great childhood. I was really lucky, daughter of Taiwanese immigrants who was born in Flushing, Queens, but then I grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey in the 80s and 90s, the definition of my parents' American dream. And to get anywhere, I had to hitch a ride with my friends or my parents. And so I became, you know, a part of a suburban generation that never knew any other way of moving around. And that brings us to another important historical point. Uh, Your experience is America's experience. The suburbs pretty much squashed any dreams of car-free living from about the 1950s on. Post-war suburbs becomes an absolute federally sponsored mass development project really designed to kickstart the economy after World War II. This is Ellen Dunham-Jones. Ellen teaches architecture and urban design at the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta. And uh, one of her claims to fame, she is known as the dead malls expert. Yeah, when the media need a professor to verify our malls dying and what's happening to them, I often get the call. She actually manages a database of dead malls, but her expertise, it's not malls per se. It's what those dead malls tell us about the suburbs, their history, their impact, and how we might change them for the better going forward. In the early 2000s, early, very early 2000s is about when we hit the tipping point of more than 50% of the U.S. population live in the suburbs. And is it still the case today that more than 50% of Americans live in the suburbs? Absolutely, yes. I'm curious if you could Talk a little bit about sort of the growth of suburban malls, how that connects to the uh, growth of our car dependency in the U.S. And, you know, are those two connected and and then sort of what the consequences of that have been? Both 
the development of malls and the development of this just car-dependent model of suburbia, both of them come out of that same drive by the federal government to sort of use suburbanization as a way to kickstart the economy. With the population being spread out thinner than in the city proper, there was a crying need for a new concept in retailing. Some place where Mr. and Mrs. Suburbia could park their car easily and then take care of all their family's needs. This idea of one-stop shopping was translated into the shopping center. The government built highways, soon followed by shopping centers. You know, even the museums, the magazines, the TV shows, they all promoted suburbia as the ideal of modern living. And I think, you know, we ended up then using the tool of zoning to segregate out, okay, houses on big lots are over here, houses on tiny lots, you're over here, and oh, apartments, you're way over there. And, you know, the the government center's over here, retail over there, business center over there. The only way to get around to all these different uses was by high-speed roads. But this plan to use suburbia to grow the economy, it ended up creating a whole new problem. Most people in suburbia... Most people everywhere, they have a car, even though they it's parked 93% of the time, <laughs> they feel they have to have this expensive object for when they have to get around and that they can't rely on transit. It's too far away or they can't rely. They don't have enough alternatives. So this is really the crux of the issue, isn't it? The majority of us, whether we live in the suburbs of Bridgewater, New Jersey, or central LA, just don't have enough options that aren't a car when we need to get from point A to B. And this goes back to episode one, when Peter Norton said, this is the result of very clear decisions that made the system this way. Right. So for us to even imagine a car-free city or car-light cities in the U.S., we have to create options that are more appealing and more accessible for people than firing up the car. And in the U.S., that does feel like a hard lift. Yeah. Even in San Francisco, when I was on the Congestion Pricing Advisory Committee, a city as progressive as San Francisco, people were so fearful of something that was about taking their beloved automobile away because, you know, it was a symbol of freedom. And I'm curious, did you ask Ellen about this? Given our deep connection to the suburban lifestyle, how realistic does she think the car-free city concept is for the U.S.? Well, she's making it work for herself. She gave up her car seven years ago, and she's been getting around the Atlanta area by walking, biking, and via public transit ever since. And I asked her what she thought it would take to change our collective thinking. Most of the places that are car-free or have gone car-free are places we love to go as tourists. So, you know, whether it's congestion pricing in London, 15-minute cities in Paris, superblocks in Barcelona, not providing parking in new neighborhoods in um, Freiburg, Germany. I mean, these are just the European examples. In in the U.S., there are at least a dozen car-free island resort areas, such as Fire Island. And if we could just get more people to say, gee, why is this so pleasant? (laughs) Um, Why couldn't I... Couldn't we do this at home? I would say right now, it depends on what are those backups that you have. How close are you to transit? How many options do you have? Here we are back at this concept of options. And how do we provide those options for people? Well, you know, one way is, as we've talked about in this series, is that there are new technology 
tools that have come online over the last few years that are creating more mobility options, both in cities and suburban areas and rural areas alike. Right. So there was Caroline Rodriguez from episode three, and she helped start up a new transit agency in rural Utah using an on-demand system, making it possible for people living in a county of almost 2,000 square miles to get anywhere they want to go without a car. And then there's the mayor uh, from Valdosta, Georgia, who was in that same episode. Uh, He launched an on-demand transit service for his city that, you know, ended up getting something like 40,000 more rides in the first year of service than they were anticipating. And there's also all these startups who are using computer vision and license plate readers and mobile phone apps to basically do versions of congestion pricing, not only in London, Singapore, Stockholm, but other cities are exploring these new technology tools as well. And because of these new tools, we're now able to connect people to diverse mobility options while making transit planning more efficient. Yeah, and I think we have to be willing to use every single tool that we have in the toolbox uh, to move things in a better direction. And Ellen uh, reflected that a bit in her comments. I think there's a number of reasons why car-free, even in suburbia, it's the heavy lift, we know, but trying to do car-free in suburbia, I think now is a good is, the, is exactly the right time to try to deal with that. I, I think a, I know a lot of folks that would actually welcome having um Microtransit options that much more convenient and easy for them to access uh, and make, have them feel safe with that. How so? Everything sort of from looking at the demographics, understanding the changes in the, in technology, the new forms of mobility, and really think fresh about what is it that promise of suburbia is sort of city out your front door, countryside out your back door. Are there ways that if we really um, significantly reduce the car, we can reimagine new ways of delivering versions of that promise? Okay, so we're taking this optimistic, inclusive approach to the car-free concept. But this whole idea of car-free or car-light communities can really scare people off, too. Yeah, right. I mean, if you just hear the phrase, like the first thing that might pop to your mind is that my... Uh, there's going to be some policy that's going to, you know, take my car away or make it impossibly expensive uh, to drive around. And that's the only option I have today to really get around my community. So, you know, I totally agree. I think, you know, Cornelia Dinka, um, when we were talking to her, she definitely honed in on this question of communications and messaging. I'm not necessarily a huge fan of the whole car-free city uh, concept per se, because it's it's a little bit ab- absolutist, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit too extreme. If you say no cars at all, uh, it's 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 a little bit too extreme, and it's also saying too much what you don't want uh, compared to spinning it around and talking more about what you want in cities. So you can talk about a, a kid-friendly city. Uh, so can children walk or bike to school on their own or play in their streets uh, without parents having to worry about them crossing the the street, for example, right? So um, I think it's it's good to talk about all these other things you get in the city when cities are not so car dominated and car dependent. You know, the reason we have to use this kind of terminology is just to even make people aware and to be able to put on the agenda kind of these alternative imageries of of what it can, what cities can be like if not every trip was dependent on the automobile. So whether we call them car-free or car-light communities, why aren't we seeing a more rapid push behind the concept? What's holding us back? 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of factors. I mean, as we've dissected, our political system is deeply tied to cars. That reflects our culture. We love cars. We associate them with uh, personal freedom. We don't like the idea of giving them up. I don't think it's sort of like widely understood the impact that our car dependency is having. Uh, And so, you know, Cornelia, she's not even American and she gets it. So people act like, you know, the the car is like their firstborn child. And if you tell them they can no longer park in front of their their house, uh, they get very angry and, and mad and, and emotional and so on. I mean, you, you, you basically said it, right? It's this idea of, you know, it's our culture, the North American culture, the American culture is so closely linked to the automobile. It's, it, yeah, there's nothing we can do about it, right? And I always like to push back on that idea because I think culture changes all the time. Uh, and I think, again, this is what we, we've seen uh, in Amsterdam in the uh, 1970s and in the 1980s, is that culture can change. It could change from this much more bike-friendly culture to a car-dominated culture, uh, and then it could also change back again. You know, I'm hearing some optimism there. Even though change is very tough, it's possible. Absolutely. You know, we just have to keep talking about the viable alternatives and then step by step show how they can work. You know, otherwise people, they won't think there's any other way. Quite often we tend to think like, okay, streets are made out of stone and out of asphalt and we can change them. And, and in fact, we can. But, but if, if you don't have any good or recent examples or if there isn't a discussion or a dialogue or a collective process to actually re-envision the streets, then it's very easy to think, well, there's no way to change. So having this massive uh, system change is, is what uh, is very paralyzing for people very often. Our entire uh, lifetimes in the U.S., right? We've lived in a country that's dominated by the car. So, you know, Tiffany, do you think this concept of a car-free community or communities across the country, is that even is that even possible here? Well, not only is it possible, it's already happening. In places like Fire Island in New York, there's a cool startup in Tempe, Arizona, right outside of Phoenix called Cul-de-Sac, where a good friend of mine, Ryan Johnson, is trying to start a new car-free community. and We can always look to places like Europe, like Venice, city centers in Barcelona, Ghent. You know, this is so possible. It's just a matter of political will. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's also interesting, right, that New York City is uh, likely to very soon uh, have congestion pricing. They they passed a law to do that. They're just kind of going through the approval process with the federal government. That'll be the first city in the U.S. to start to uh, charge drivers um, uh, for, you know, driving into congested areas of Manhattan. And, you know, the reason, even though it's super politically difficult to get that accomplished, the reason that's even, you know, only possible in New York is because there were great mobility options in place, you know? So I think, um, you know, I think if we can start to build those mobility options elsewhere, it opens up the opportunity to, to generate, you know, funding to do even more. There are a bunch of people in the U.S. who are living in communities that are effectively, you know, car-free or car-light. And that is really important. Even though we're talking about, a much broader vision and this being in uh, many more communities across the U.S., people are living this experience today of getting around their community without a car. Uh, and so, you know, I think, again, it just comes back to choice and other options to get around. And, you know, as Peter Norton says, framing this all around choice, it's a critical piece of the American identity. Right now, Americans don't have choices 
most of us. Uh, and when I say choices, I don't just mean the theoretical possibility of getting a bus or the theoretical possibility of riding a bike, but the attractive equivalence of, of that choice. In other words, is uh, riding a bike as inviting and as safe to you as ri- riding in your car? And this is a country that has often stood for valuing individual liberty, individual choice. Um, and if we really value choice, then maybe that fact can help us to ensure that people who choose not to drive have that choice, not just as a theoretical possibility, but as an attractive opportunity. Jerome Horn talks about this too. He's the transit expert we've heard from a couple times this season. And Jerome thinks there are a lot of shared values that can make the car-free concept more attractive. We sort of have to meet people where they're at and appeal to core values with folks about, you know, don't you want cleaner air? Don't you want a safer community? You know, and I think once you begin to have conversations with people about what their values are, we find out that a lot of us are very similar in what we want. We want to make the world a better place. We want to reduce, you know, crime and violence and particularly death from being struck by automobiles for a lot of pedestrians. But how we get there, it's it's messy. It's a little complicated. It's ambiguous. But I think, you know, beginning to build that bridge with, hey, if we allow more people to get around their community, walking, biking, and taking transit, you know, for those who still want to or will continue to drive, their experience will be better. I gotta say, after this series, I feel like we can get to a place in this country where cars will one day feel optional, not mandatory. I do too. And I think it's important to remember that this won't all come at once. You know, there's a lot of steps along the way that can have a massive positive impact on people's economic mobility, their health, and their quality of life. And I asked Sham Kanan, the planning expert at HDR, who you've heard from uh, in this series, about what it'll take to move the ball forward. And his answer felt like an appropriate place to close. You know, to those that ask that question, I challenge them to pivot their thinking slightly. Because in this country, at least, and in most of our cities, one-third of the population is too young to drive. One-third of the population is too old to drive. And half of the working population might not be able to afford a personal vehicle. The challenge for us is to realize that for vast swaths of today's population, the city is already a car-free city, but not by choice. And we have an obligation to make their lives as seamless as possible today with investments we can make today to not only make their lives better, but also to improve society for all of us. So my challenge to the policymakers is to focus their intent on those populations today that don't have the luxury of dreaming of a quote-unquote car-free city. We'll get there. We'll get to a place where we don't need to make these immense personal investments in in infrastructure to get around. But we have a lot of stuff we can do this afternoon that doesn't require us to wait 40 years. Amen. To not waiting. To not waiting. That concludes our sixth and final episode of this season. Thank you so much for sticking with us. And if you like what you've heard this season, please share a link on social media with the transit nerd in your life. Uh, MoShift is produced by VIA in partnership with PostScript Media. VIA's technology enables partners to create end-to-end transit systems from planning better networks and streets to operating efficient, equitable public transit. 
Learn more at ridewithvia.com. This show is hosted by me, Andre Greenwald. And me, Tiffany Chu. The show is produced by Stephen Lacey, Ann Bailey, Cecily Meza-Martinez, and Dalvin Abouage of Postscript Media. It's also produced by Francis Cooperman, Andy Ambrosius, and Andre Greenwald from VIA. Sean Marquand composed our theme song and mixed the show. Thanks, Tiffany, for being my co-host for this uh, awesome season one of Mode Shift. And to all our listeners, thanks so much for sticking with us. Are we, are we, uh, we done? I think we're done.